Yo, check us out. Chuck D, public enemy. Yo, what's up? This is DJ Yellow from the world's most dangerous group. What's up? This is DOC, the Diggy Diggy motherfucking God. Yo, 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 what's up? This is your boy, Z-Man. What up, dog? This is E-Shot. This is Jerry Heller, motherfucker. It's your boy, DJ Paul KOL for 365. Young Busy Ball. Vice World. This your man, Matt Mine the Hell Razor. Yo, this is DJ Ready Red. What up, what up, what up? This is the real Rick Ross, and you're listening to me on the Murder Master Music Show. What's up, everybody? Uh, welcome back to the Murder Master Music Show. This is episode 894. We got a guest who really needs no introduction. He's been on the show a few times in the past um, promoting uh, original gangsters and, and um, you know other projects. He's a well-known author and writer. He's got a new book out called Little Brother. It's available right now, which uh, I recommend that everybody reads it because it's it's a personal story. Um, about Ben becoming a, a, a big brother to a young man who tragically loses his life. I don't want to talk too much about it, but um, you know, because I want you guys to read it. But I want uh, I want to bring Ben on so we can uh, discuss this uh, phenomenal new book that he has. Ben, uh, how you doing, man? Great. Thank you for the nice introduction, Scott. It's great to be back. Oh yeah, definitely, definitely. I I know we we don't have the reach of Joe Rogan, but um, I just want to say it was awesome seeing you on his podcast. Um, what was yeah, that? Yeah, like? well, you guys you guys had me first, so uh, you know he's just followed <laughs> in your footsteps. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, well, that was huge. That was uh, for for uh, the book you put out, Fentanyl Inc., which is another uh, phenomenal read that uh, people need to check out about the growing problem that we still face in the United States today. Um, but this particular book, Little Brother, um, Love, Tragedy, 
um, and my search for the truth is very, very personal to you um, because it, it, it's about somebody that you lost in your life that you were very close to. Um, can you kind of uh, give us a little bit of the rundown of uh, you know what made you want to do this book and how you got involved with uh, Jarrell? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I was in the Big Brothers, Big Sisters mentorship program, and um, I was 28 years old and got matched up with this kid named Jarrell, and uh, he was eight years old at the time, and um, we were together for 11 years, and uh, this was in St. Louis where I live, and a big part of how we bonded was over hip-hop music, actually. This was the time that I was writing, you know, about hip hop, like uh, my book about West Coast rap, original gangsters. And I would interview, you know, I would interview these guys and he would be shocked. He would be so impressed, you know, to hear about these interviews with his, his idols. And he actually introduced me to a lot of rappers I never even heard of. Like he was the first person who ever told me about Gucci Mane, for example. And Lil Boozy, he was into, like, long before everybody else. Um, but so, yeah, we had a really tight relationship. He even uh, lived with my wife and me one summer, sleeping on the couch. And uh, But then he got murdered at age 19 um, near his family's home in Ferguson, just outside of St. Louis. And uh, he was shot at point-blank range broad daylight, the middle of the day, and yet the police um, didn't solve it, couldn't solve it. You know, the case went cold. And originally I thought it must have just been a uh, mistake or a random shooting. You know, he got caught in someone else's crossfire, et cetera, et cetera. And so I really stuck my head in the sand for a long time. But eventually... You know, I started uh, to become more of an investigative journalist, more writing about crime, drug trafficking, things like that. And I learned that most killings, you know, when it's not a burglary, this is not a burglary, definitely, but in most killings, the, the person who's killed knows their assailant. And so it occurred to me that he probably did know who killed him. I started really bearing down and looking into um, all the the potential suspects, and I, you know, I really packed this case all the way to the end. Yeah, yeah, it, it it almost is like he was there helping you along the way, you know, um, because you needed you needed to know everything, you know, what I'm saying to put this together. Um, but initially. Um, when you found out of, of the tragedy, uh, you you started to blame yourself. Um, how did you get through that point in time? It must have been horrible. Yeah, it was really awful. I mean, whenever I was with Jarrell, he tried to make it sound like everything was great in his life. You know, I'd say, how's school? And he'd say, he said, great, I just got an A on a test. You know, and I said, how's your family? He said, everyone's great, you know. But it turns out there was all sorts of stuff he was hiding from me. And after he died, his friends told me that he always wanted to put on, like, a good face for you. And he always hid what was really happening. And so it turns out that he'd gotten into um, 
trading guns. He had all these illegal guns, and he would trade with these guys in a, in a nearby town. And he had this super valuable gun, you know, it, uh, and some people were saying maybe he was killed for that gun. He was showing it off, kind of, you know, flaunting it to everybody. Um, he'd gotten into heroin, which I never knew when he was alive. I would see him. I'd pick him up sometimes. We'd go out to get some food or something, and he would be like one minute. He'd be so hyped up, you know, and really talkative, and the next minute he'd be like snoring. And I thought that was weird, but, you know, I, you know, I smelled marijuana and stuff like that. I just figured this is typical teenager stuff. And I did kind of blame myself for never digging beneath the surface. You know, the warning signs were there that he was getting involved with some really bad stuff, some really dangerous people, but I never really pursued it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, you know, and to be fair, you know, you, you guys were apart and um, <clears throat> he's already grown up at this point. You know, because you met him when he was uh, he was about what ten, about eight years old, yeah. And yeah, uh, now this so, is, this you is know, the Big Brother Big Sister program in St. Louis. That's right, yeah, and I think it's a really great program. There, I, I always wanted to do something to give back, you know, and I've done stuff like volunteering at a soup kitchen or Habitat for Humanity. But in those experiences, it felt like they didn't even really need volunteers. They had plenty of people already. But with Big Brothers, Big Sisters, they really need people, especially men. You know, they need uh, male mentors because so many of the littles, the, the mentees, the kids, are boys, and they're the ones who need the most guidance. And so I was really glad to be in that program, even – after he was killed, it still didn't change my opinion about this program. Um, and the kind of silver lining with all of this and writing this book is that I got to know his family a lot better. And I got to know more about Darrell than I ever did when he was alive. And, but it, but it was, it was really intense. The first thing I did was I asked everyone he knew, like in his family, who do you think killed him? And the police weren't talking to me at all. They, you know, they said the case was ongoing. They couldn't release their files, even though this was years later. And it was clear that this case had really stalled out in reality. But so I had to kind of like do my own grassroots kind of ground level reporting. But that's kind of what my painting has done. You know, my last book was about the fentanyl epidemic. I went into a like Chinese drug labs. I interviewed all these dark web drug dealers. I was, I kind of knew how to pursue a, a tough subject like this. And so I, these are some of the most dangerous places in the country. St. Louis has the highest murder rate of all cities in the country. Um, if you look at the list of the most, you know, the, the highest murder rates in the whole world, there's like countries from Mexico, other uh, cities in Mexico, Brazil, Venezuela are the top 12, and then number 13 is St. Louis, basically. Yeah. 
and, and you're going through these neighborhoods like Kinlock and all these sp- places, you know, uh, where you could easily get killed yourself. Yeah, it, it, was, it felt like a big kind of risk to do this. And I, you know, I have kids and I considered just abandoning the project at one point because I felt like I was getting in over my head. But ultimately, I didn't want Jarrell just to be another statistic. His family had no closure about who killed him, and what they wanted to know was who killed him and why. And so being able to answer that for them just made the whole thing worth it. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Now, when when you got the answer, um, have you been in fear of your life? Because this is a, a situation where it can come back to you. Well, you know, the book is just coming out right now as we speak, and so I I don't use the killer's real name in the book, but it is there is a description, you know, a description of him, and so I am worried, but, you know, I, I'm pretty hard to find. I made sure of that, and um, ultimately, you know, I'm not – this guy, first of all, is not going to prison because the the witness wouldn't talk. So they they can't make a prosecution. There is one witness, but he won't talk. Um, this guy, it turns out, Darrell had harmed him, and this guy felt scared for his own family. And uh, so even though he did the like worst imaginable thing. I actually do feel a little bit of sympathy for him. And um, I have a feeling that he's not the type of guy who just goes out and wantonly trying to kill anyone. This was a really came from a place of fear. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that, that, that whole life is just, you know, so unpredictable. Um, anything could happen at any time. Um, but it, it just had to have been hard for you to put all this together and kind of relive what, what Jarrell was going through. Um, you know, and like you said, at one point in time, you thought about, you know, closing up shop on the book. What made you keep going? Just wanting to have resolution for Jarrell's family. Um, this, this is basically a personal story, and it's also a story kind of about the haves and the have-nots. Because, like, I'm not from St. Louis, and Jarrell's not from St. Louis either. I come from Minnesota. And when I moved here, you know, I landed in one of the, like, fancy neighborhoods. And when when we met, he only lived a mile away from where I lived. But he lived in one of the most dangerous parts of St. Louis. You know, St. Louis is like that. It's super segregated. It's super uh, divided, Um, you know, the poverty, people in poverty and rich people live right by each other. Um, And so, you know, like his bike got stolen, his dog got off the leash and the police shot it. Um, I was shocked when I visited his house for the first time. It was like the door was off the hinges. Um, He had just like a tarp for his bedroom door. He and his siblings all slept on one mattress together. You know, the the windows have been broken but never replaced. Um, and then when he saw this high rise that I was living in, 
you know, the condo that I was living in and we had a swimming pool and it was really about learning about uh, a whole new environment that I never would have learned about in the first place. And um, that's another part of what made our relationship so rewarding. Yeah, yeah, because you guys had two totally different backgrounds. But, of course, um, you know, um, even though you might have, you know, come from a a better upbringing, so to speak, you still dabbled around with 40 ounces, smoked a little weed yourself. Um, I like some of the stories you talk about of of your mischievous activities as a juvenile. Um, Did hip-hop play play a role in any of that, uh, Beth? Uh, yeah, yeah, it definitely did. Um, you know, starting junior high and high school, uh, NWA, uh, Sarah Compton came out and easy does it. And like I said, we were living in Minnesota, but, um, we talked about Compton all the time, you know, and there were those movies, Boys in the Hood, those were like our movies, Menace to Society. And, uh, you know, we wanted to be easy and we were like, Drinking. I found out later, you know, as I said in the original Gangsters, that like Evie didn't even drink at the beginning. He would have his 40-ounce bottles as stage props that were filled with apple juice. But, you know, we didn't know that, and we were drinking 40s. And, um, and then, you know, when I got older, I was in St. Louis. I, you know, I did some really dumb stuff, like one time my friend and I were drunk and we decided we wanted some cocaine. And so we, we uh, went to Jarrell's neighborhood actually, cause we knew there were drug dealers posted up all around there and bought like a crack rock. And then we were just like total idiots. We used a credit card to try to chop up the crack rock and snort it like cocaine. And it just uh, didn't, I mean, it was just the dumbest thing to do. It didn't really even get us high. It was just a big waste. And it was just dangerous and dumb, but, you know, that's who I was back then. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, you know what's funny in that story, Ben? Here Easy E is using beer uh, as props, and you're out there trying crack rock. You know, a, a kid from a, a, a well-to-do, you know, upbringing, um, you know, it could have gotten bad for you because that could have led to a, a lot of other things. But you decided, no, I'm going to stick with academics. I'm going to I'm going to get through this. Um, but that's that's amazing. The power of gangster rap. <laughs> yeah, I mean, when Snoop Dogg's Doggy Style dropped, that was like the biggest album in my school's history. It felt like that was everyone wanted that, you know. I when I finally did go to Compton to do reporting for Original Gangsters, it was like a place I'd been hearing about all my life. You know, it, it was portrayed to me as the most dangerous place on earth. And so I actually went to Easy E's mom's house in Compton and I talked with his son, Lil Easy E. And but when I got out of my car I was shaking. I was you know I was like, oh, man, they're going to think I'm a narc or, or what's, what's going on here. But then I knocked on the door, and Little Easy answered, and he was like, no, nah, if they, anyone notices you at all, they'll probably just think you're a Mormon missionary. <laughs> yeah, that's a good cover. There you go. Um, 
But that's uh, we'll get back to um, Big Brother in a minute. But you know, while we're talking about Easy E, um, that's an amazing thing. In your book, Original Gangsters, you uncovered a lot of stuff about Easy E. The fact that there could be a briefcase of music out there. Um, I've, I've heard more about that since your book uh, drops. More people have elaborated on the possibilities that it's in Canada, and it, you know, it really, it really does exist. Um, <clears throat> When you were doing original gangsters, you know, growing up listening to Easy E, what were some of the most fascinating things that you learned about Easy that you didn't know before doing the book? Oh yeah, well, you mentioned that suitcase. There was this guy who was emailing me recently about this, and he found this um, eBay listing. Uh, it said something like um, "unreleased Ruthless Records demos." And um, GBM, Gangster Bitch Mentality, and Wicked Offspring, Rhythm D. And so the, um, their listing, it said it comes from unpaid storage, unpaid storage units. The office was located in Canada, where this briefcase of unreleased EVE music was supposedly located. And um, so this guy who wrote me was convinced that just had to be that, you know? And so we both tried to turn the screws on this person who put up the eBay link. And we were like, where did you get this? You know, what is this? And he said, you have to buy, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to just talk about it. I don't owe you anything, blah, blah, blah. And uh, I reached out to Rhythm D about it. And Rhythm D thought it was kind of weird and suspicious. He didn't know what it was either. But finally, um, you know, this guy just with the eBay, with the eBay listing just cut off communication. And if we weren't going to pay, I don't know, it was like a thousand bucks. It was two thousand bucks actually. I was just looking at it for these tapes, and we don't know what's on it. But I just didn't want to pay two thousand dollars to go on a wild goose chase. Yeah, for something that might not be legit, but uh, it's kind of. Uh, Awkward. I think the same person you're talking about contacted me too. Um, they always want me to, to to get a hold of Mike Klein. We had a part of the show in the uh, that We TV documentary that EB was doing last year, and they had Mike Klein on that show. But it was weird. It was almost like his interview was a redacted uh, document from the government because, like, like every other word was blacked out because he, he couldn't talk about anything. He had a gag order, I guess, from a some type of a settlement or something. Um, do you think it might be possible that he could have answers about, uh, you know, unreleased music? It's certainly possible. Yeah, that's amazing that uh, they talked to Mike Fine, and I saw. I think I saw some of that. Um, who's to say? But it seems like that guy just knows a lot, lot more than uh, almost anyone else involved. Yeah, he sure does, you know, and he was, plus he was brought in to deal with their biggest problem at the time, Suge Knight, you know. So if this guy can put the fear of God into Suge Knight, he's got to have something going on. Um, but yeah, that's... Yeah, yeah, and I guess uh, Jerry Heller died since we last spoke. Yeah. Um, you know, R.I.P. Jerry, I know he called into your show a bunch of times and people <laughs> with tackle him sometimes and say uh, say crazy stuff, but, you know, 
Terrier always holds his own. He um, he he didn't care. I I asked him about uh, you know Ice Cube who would win in a fight, and he says, "Oh, I'd kick his ass." <laughs> I mean, <laughs> he was something else. Um, I I found it really strange and and in a, in a good way though that he kind of latched on to our show. It's like he um, he felt comfortable with us, you know, um, and that's a rare thing because. You know, there's shows, million-dollar platforms that could, couldn't get them to talk, couldn't get them on there. So we were blessed in that aspect, you know, to have them on a few times, you know, before his, his, his death. Yeah, those those are great shows. I, I listened to all those. And I think the thing is about Jerry that, you know, he could be an asshole. You know, I experienced that myself. Like, I um, – he invited me actually to come. He, I said I wanted to see Easy's old house in Calabasas in his gated community. And so he said he would show me the house. And so I went there. This was about 1990, uh, excuse me, about 2015 probably. And, um, he showed me the house and then I, and then I said, um, yeah, and I'd love to talk to you, you know, about Easy and stuff like that. And he was like, I'll I'll talk to you, but put your recorder put your recorder away. No interview, you know. And he would be like nice to me for ten minutes, and then start swearing at me for another ten minutes. But um, but ultimately, what I you know, as an investigative journalist, what I found out really is that everyone said Jerry stole from them. You know, Jerry stole this, Jerry stole that. But there, but no one sued him. There's no evidence that he really stole from anyone, you know, I'm sure his, his contracts that, that he wrote up were not always super beneficial to the artist too, but that's different than outright stealing from somebody. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. You, you have the, uh, the right to say, yes, you want to do it or no, you don't want to take the, the offer. Um, but they, yeah, you always, you got to follow the money. No one's ever sued him, you know, um, now you look at other record labels like let's let's look at Luke Records for example. Uh, I think MC Shy D sued him. Um, other people sued him over you know certain people you know um, <clears throat> it's there they're gonna they're gonna do it. But Jerry Heller you know Ice Cube could easily sue him if he if he uh, thought that he uh, was getting screwed over. But he didn't. He made a great point. Um, I'll tell you what. Let's uh, I want to come back and talk more about. Uh, Little Brother, it's a phenomenal book. Um, let's go to a break real quick. Uh, we're talking about Easy. Let's give him, uh, I'll tell you what, man, this is one of my favorites. This, I'm going to break it down. I don't think this one gets enough uh, credit. Um, you know, it wasn't a popular song, wasn't a single, but uh, definitely uh, a good way to hear Easy Flow. We'll be right back with Ben Westoff. Don't go nowhere. Taking out profanity So they can play it though Listen to the hell of a kick And the hi-hat Going to the record store Say you're gonna buy That the E is connected To the A and the Z You say why So that's how to be Back it up on material Made of hits Taking my time with each line To make sure it fits Push play on the instrumental That's recorded Step on stage And I'm suddenly awarded Some put a trophy appeared like a plaque And some hell of a scream From the girls in the back Taking a bow Cause I got style Never at the bottom Always on the top of the pile You always see me on top Even though I'm short Guaranteed 
to start writing on, on drug case like fentanyl or also this book, Little Brother, works for the cycle of uh, poverty, violence, and drugs, in fact. How can the idea, the processes? Um, yeah, you know, like my main subject has been hip-hop and drugs. In fact, I even have a newsletter called Drugs and Hip-Hop, and both of those elements are at play here in this book, Little Brother. It's kind of a true crime memoir, but it's about my life and about Jarrell's life. And like I said, we bonded over hip hop. Jarrell really looks like a young Snoop Dogg. It's like incredible how much they looked alike down to the same kind of wispy mustache, kind of like thin frame, the hair even, it it gave me chills. Um, But Jarrell was, uh, he was kind of an aspiring rapper himself. He never really uh, let anyone hear his stuff. But there was that, and then there was the fact that he had started taking heroin without my knowing. And, um, you know, it's even possible that he was taking fentanyl because nowadays you can hardly even find any heroin on the street that's not caught with fentanyl. And so my kind of expertise when it came to defense know and how it was infecting the drug supply. Um, all of this came to bear when I was doing this investigation into who killed Jarrell for my book, Little Brother. Yeah, yeah I understand. Uh, when you write the, the book on, on Dirty South, the South rappers reinvented hip-hop, you get also into St. Louis because of Nelly, and uh, there were also really underrated talent like Mrs. Monk or Straight Into Live groups in uh, in St. Louis or LOS. But you get also with Lil Wayne and so on, and you go in fact with the drug case like uh, the screw music or Six mafia music like uh, you know expired uh, the cyber drug. Can I tell us about this book about the? the impact of the drugs on South and hip-hop, too. Yeah, that's a really good point. Um, Thank you for reading my stuff. And, yeah, Dirty South, that was my first real book from 2011. And it's about about Southern hip-hop, and it was exploding at the time. And mostly it's about the scenes, you know, I traveled all over Atlanta, Houston, New Orleans, Memphis. And then even though St. Louis is not technically the South, like you said, Nelly and all them blowing up is is a very Southern sound. And so they were included too. But the drugs were a a big part of it, for sure. Um, You know, you hear a lot about the opioid epidemic, and that is generally like fentanyl is an opioid, heroin, Oxycontin. That's what people think of. But really lean is also an opioid, you know, drank um, prescription cough syrup, it's codeine and promethazine, and it's also an opioid. And so it's also really addictive. And so during this era, um, Houston especially, but, you know, it expanded well beyond Houston. Of course, Three Six Mafia has sipping on some syrup and is popular all over the South and all over the country, really. Um, but it was taking the lives of all these big prominent hip hop stars, especially in Houston, you know, Pimp C is the most famous. Um, but that, that was a big problem, you know, and then, and then hip hop got really into, uh, pills 
and you always heard future talking about, uh, you know, Percocet, Xanax, um, uh, Percocet's another opioid. And the problem is that, like, these pills are, are dangerous enough if you're getting them from a doctor, you know, and, and you can get addicted to these pills really easily. But the problem is when you buy them on the street, they could have fentanyl in them. They're not, they're not the real pills. They're, like, made on pill-pressing machines where these chemists will, um, to save money, they're not going to make real Xanax or real Percocet. They're going to make them out of fentanyl. So, so they cost, like, two cents to make, and they'll sell them on the street for $5 or whatever. And uh, so people don't realize that when you take these pills, it might say Xanax. It might look exactly like a Xanax, but it actually could have fentanyl and kill you. Yeah, yeah, right. So put it in the weed too now. I don't think it's in yeah. weed too much. Like, there's not the same profit uh, motive. Like, if you can see the buzz, sometimes on the news they say there's fentanyl in weed, but I don't think I've never heard of that really, really being true. Like, if you can smell the buzz and uh, see that the buzz looks normal, then you're you're gonna be fine. Just gotta just gotta be yeah. careful. Yeah. Yeah, but when it comes to original gangsters' book, you also expose the gangster rap. In fact, is emphasized by drug culture. Uh, what's your analysis about it? Because also I think about uh, a song of uh, Daniel D. of Rap Syndicate, FBI. This song exposed crack impact on the whole. If you remember the, the, the clip. The uh, sorry, which clip did you say? Oh. <laughs> I say the um, original gangsters book. Uh, you expose the gangster rap infested into drug culture. And I think oh, like the crack, okay, of, crack cocaine and stuff. Are you talking about? Right, right. And I think uh, I think it's uh, about a song of Daniel G, a Frenchman you can who called FBI, and in this track he exposed crack impact on the hood. Maybe you yeah. Yeah, I mean, you know, Easy E famously, uh, before he became a hip hop producer and uh, rapper, was uh, selling crack cocaine on the streets of Compton, right. and um, that, you know, he prided himself on never taking it, and uh, he wanted to stay sharp, and I think that was really common. You know, if you watch the evolution of hip hop, in the beginning, um, rappers don't even smoke weed. They, like, talk about how much they hate weed. And Dr. Dre is another example of that. You know, he says, I don't smoke weed or Seth. It's known to give a brother brain damage. And, um, you know, DJ, uh, Rob Bass, DJ Easy Rock, they talk about, I don't smoke Buddha, I can't stand Seth. Um, that was really common. Run DMC had all these anti-drug messages. And then it sort of started to turn into a little more, like, I'll sell drugs, you know, to make money to get by, but I don't take them myself. And, um, you know, Easy maybe was more along those lines. And then eventually it shifted into, like, I do take drugs. You know, smoking weed was the big one, like, uh, you know, Cypress Hill, Dr. J. The Chronic, Snoop Dogg, that kind of ushered that in. And uh, eventually it got to the point where, you know, taking drugs is a big part of uh, rap music, too. Yeah, 
Yeah, yeah unfortunately. Yeah. We're seeing that a lot right now. I think about, about AZ Faison, who was a ex-drug dealer and uh, who became anti-crack tracks like the Piper when he did the mud style. AZ Faison. Yeah. Crazy. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I see. Um, you know, you you played yourself. He told you, you know, don't do crack. You know, um, they spoke about that back then. It was almost like a, you know, a violation if you did something like that. You know. Right. Yeah. Yeah, and then yeah, and so that's why it's so crazy. I remember I interviewed Fat Joe, you know, in the late 2000s, and he had, you know, his nickname was Joey Crack. And he rapped about, um, you know, promethazine and uh, cough syrup, you know, all sorts of drugs. And then I asked him, like, do you take this stuff? He's like, no, no, I would never do that. And 50% like, didn't really smoke weed, you know. And people would, like, use it just to be cool. Yeah. Yeah, Absolutely. It's a different game right now, that's for sure. Um, but yeah, you got you know you got Dirty South, you got Original Gangsters, Fentanyl Inc., and Little Brother. Um, all of them are phenomenal books. Uh, Little Brother is the one that's out right now that everybody needs to to make sure to check out. Um, are you got you got anything um, going in the future? Or are you going to stick with Little Brother for a few years or? Yeah, I'm trying to figure out my kind of next move. Um, there's been some stuff happening with this uh, drug kingpin that I tracked down in China. Uh, fentanyl and all, uh, all pretty much all fentanyl comes from China. And so I went undercover in this drug lab in Wuhan, actually, of all places. And uh, this, this drug kingpin, I interviewed him undercover and then wrote this expose and fentanyl link about it and he was finally just um a big indictment the u.s department of justice put a five million dollar reward for his capture and uh now he has his daughter who's like a fashion model who's also like running is next in line to run his empire and so i've been kind of tracking these people so that might be a, another project going forward and Ben, you got some big cojones, my brother, because uh, you put yourself in some very, very dangerous situations. And uh, you know, I, I commend you uh, for doing that because um, a lot of people, especially journalists, are not that committed to their uh, work. You know, um, is there any point in time when you were doing this stuff, like you said, uh, you know, in, in, in Wuhan or, or different things? Tracking down kingpins, were you, were you in fear of your life, your safety? Any scary situations? Yeah, I mean, the good thing about in China, um, the drug lords, it's not like the Mexican cartels where they're cutting off people's heads and, you know, it's not bloody like that. Like these Chinese uh, drug operations, they kind of want to stay quiet because the government really controls everything in China. And so they, yeah. they know that the government could just get rid of them at any moment. And so they're trying to just make money quietly. And so 
I was actually more worried about the government myself when I was there because I wasn't there on a journalist, an official journalist visa. I was there just, I was pretending to be a tourist. And so I could have been thrown in jail for doing that. And that's what I was the most worried about. But fortunately that didn't come to pass. But, but with little brother, yeah, that I basically narrowed it down to three people who could have killed Jarrell, my little brother. And, um, and that was when things got really hairy because they were involved with some, you know, some gangs that were up to some shit and they, um, some guys were in prison. I was, I had all these kind of like people speaking in my ear from prison who were telling me what was really happening. And, um, you know, I, I think at some point I'm going to have to retire from, uh, from all this kind of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I have to, uh, definitely lay low for sure <laughs> you know but uh man you're 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 doing great work and, and you're uh you know like i said uh when i saw you on rogan I, I was like wow that's awesome because that's one of the biggest platforms when it comes to this you know so um it shows you that people are paying attention to what you're doing they're reading your books and um they want more you know so keep doing your thing brother Thank you. Yeah, that that was really wild being on Rogan. Uh, I think he moved to Austin since then, but he was in L.A. at the time, and he was located in this, like, secret warehouse, this secret location, and I wasn't allowed to have, like, any GPS tracking on my phone. And uh, it was, like, kind of this giant man cave. I described it as kind of a man cave um, combined with an art gallery. He had these, like, Andy Warhol style prints and um, cars. He like drove his his car like straight into the studios. There was a garage door. I didn't even realize it was just uh, like it was wild being there. Um, yeah, exactly. So so he had a, a location. He didn't want nobody to know where it was at. Wow. He must. Did you get the sense that maybe he was? Uh, maybe a little paranoid or maybe legitimately in fear of something? I think it's partly that, and I think it's partly just his fans are so obsessive that people would just try to come find him, and so I really don't know. Yeah, that's wild. Um, you know, but he, he seems like a, a a decent person. You know, uh, he's spoken to a lot of different people. Um you know, he's been under the gun lately for for a lot of things. So is so is everybody. Um, of course, down here in the underground, we can kind of do what we want and say what we want. But you being uh, in the spotlight, so to speak, is there any pressure ever on you to um, you know tone it down on the on the gangster rap or the you know anybody ever say you know you got to watch the lines you tread. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if people say it explicitly, but there is always a sense that, like, you uh, you can't offend people's sensibilities. You can only push things so far. Um, but but to me, it's just like, you know, I'm not uh, here to, um, you know, say crazy things and get people riled up. I just want to go for the truth, you know, and, like, I want to do real reporting and get to like the real truth of the matter. And to me, even if the truth isn't fashionable now, it, it will be fashionable 
10 years from now, you know, and, and to me the truth will always win out. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Ben, uh, I want to thank you. It's always a pleasure. Um, before we get out of here, is there anything uh, you'd like to say, uh, anything about uh, where they can get the book or any upcoming uh, signings? Man, the floor is yours, brother. Yeah, the book is called Little Brother, Love, Tragedy, and My Search for the Truth. If you just Google Ben Westoff, you'll go to my site. It has all my books. So you can get them all on Amazon or most record, you know, most uh, bookstores. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, thanks again. And uh, also, i um, terribly sorry about the loss of your little brother. Um, you know, uh, very tragic. Uh, so please, everybody, get the book, Little Brother, uh, and, uh, you know, check out this amazing yet tragic story that Ben has put together. Um, thank you. Well, and, uh, thanks, thanks Scott, and, and, thank, and thanks, Ben. Great, great talking to you both. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. You take care, brother. Okay. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.